So about the time Tina and I moved here, um, my 21-year-old pickup truck died. Kind of got to the point where the expenses of repairing it would exceed the value of the truck, and so I had to give it up. And uh, so it was a, it was a sad parting, uh, seeing my little pickup truck go away. And um, so I started looking for another pickup truck to replace it until a wise friend asked me, how often do you use your pickup truck as a pickup truck? Good question, got me thinking. And I thought, very little, very little. You know, most of the time I'm using it like a car. And it just got me thinking, oh, I could be getting better than 17 miles to the gallon, you know? And so I started looking elsewhere and I found this little cream puff here. Um, and uh, found it online, and, and it is a blast. It's got six on the floor, and it's fun to drive. I think it looks pretty sharp, and I get nearly 40 miles to the gallon out of this little critter. And have you ever been looking for one thing, and, and you find another that's, that's very different from the thing you were looking for initially, but, but better, better? There was a man named... Um, Nabil Qureshi, who wrote a book a few years ago called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Nabil was a devout Muslim uh, who was in college, and uh, a friend told him about Jesus. And so he began to investigate for himself the historicity of Jesus and the truth claims of Jesus. And while he was seeking Allah, he found Jesus. Jesus, and he found life. Seeking one thing, finding another far better than the thing you were thinking. Today's passage of scripture that we're going to look at shows several encounters like that. People who were looking for one thing but found something that was much, much more. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20, and if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, catch Mike's eye as he comes down the aisle here, and he'd be glad to hand you one. And if you need a Bible at home, bring it home with you. We'd be glad for you to take it along. If you're using this Bible, we're going to be on page 756 today, page 756, John chapter 20. Several people who were looking for one thing and found much, much more. Mary Magdalene is the first of those that we're going to consider this morning. We see her in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 11 to 18 as well. Verses 1 and 2 show her question. Verses 11 to 18 show God's answer. In short, Mary Magdalene came looking for a dead body, and she found much, much more. Let's take a look. Look at verses 1 and 2. On page 756, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. That morning, as she went to the tomb, Mary Magdalene was sad. In fact, sad doesn't begin to describe the state of her heart. It's been three days now since 
she saw Jesus crucified. She watched her Lord and Master die on that cross. They took the body down before Sabbath began, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saw to it that the body was wrapped with spices in linen strips. Now Sabbath is over. They're on the other side of Sabbath now, and Mary wants to see if somehow she can finish up taking care of the dead body of Jesus. She gets to the tomb early. In verse 1, it tells us it's still dark outside, and she sees the stone missing. That's got to be an absolutely chilling thing for her to experience. Coming up in the dark to this place and seeing the stone missing. Grave robbers were, were common in that day. Grave robbers wouldn't have known there'd be nothing of value in that tomb. And it looks to her like they've been here. And she is frightened to death. And she runs back to tell the others what she has seen. And she tells the disciples that some mysterious they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And she says, we don't know where they've put him. It's interesting. She seems in John's account to come alone to the tomb, but she says, we don't know where they've put him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record multiple women going to the tomb that morning. Uh, and so this we may be a, a link with that. Uh, might be able to bring those accounts together just a wee bit. And again, as we've seen so many times in John, he, he is not concerned so much with sharing the details that the synoptic gospel writers have shared. He, he's even assuming that you know some of those details. He wants to show the significance of the event itself. And so he has just Mary featured here because he wants to tell us something that is really significant that is happening to Mary, something special about her experience that morning. And as Mary gets to uh, the tomb, and as she gets to the disciples after she's been to the tomb, she has one question on her mind, and it's this, where is the body? Where is the body? This bloody, mangled, pitiful body. Somebody has moved the body. And if she can just find the body, she can finish preparing it and maybe get some closure for herself. Well, her reporting that to the disciples gets Peter and John moving. Uh, they race to the tomb, and we'll look at the rest of their account in a minute, but apparently Mary follows them there, and she's on hand as they go back to their homes it's then that things get really interesting. Look at verse 11. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Mary uh, encounters some angels, and they, they ask her why she's crying. Again, she responds with this mysterious they, 
who seemed to have removed the body of Jesus. And she said, I don't know where to look to find him. Can you help? And she's still looking for a body. And then she turns around and sees Jesus standing outside the tomb. And she interacts with him, not realizing who it is she's talking to. Look at verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. She doesn't recognize him. Ever wonder why? There are a few things we can consider. One, verse 1 tells us it's still dark. Recognizing someone in the dark isn't exactly easy. It's dark. Verse 11 tells us she's been crying. She's blinded by tears. So that combination of things would tend to help you not recognize someone. There's more, though. It seems that his resurrected body looks different than he looked when he walked with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us some things about the resurrection body. There's continuity and discontinuity between a physical earthly body and a resurrection body. The body that we will get one day if we've trusted in Christ will be able to do things our present body can't do. There, there is something otherworldly to this, this person that, that Mary is looking at. So much so that other people also don't recognize him when they first see him, as we'll see next week in chapter 21. But one thing's for certain. He doesn't look like the last time she saw him dead on the cross could also be that she is being kept from recognizing him. That was the case of the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. They were actually kept from recognizing Jesus until a certain point. I think all of those possibilities are good ones, and all of them may at least be part of the explanation, but add this to it. He's the last person she expected to see that morning. All she knows is he's dead. She has no categories in her mind for resurrection. And he asks her a couple of questions. He says, why are you crying? He had told the disciples that he'd be killed and resurrected. But in her grief, her ability to reason just couldn't pull that up. And without waiting, he asks her a second question. Who is it you're looking for? She couldn't see that the one she was looking for was the one she was talking to. He was standing right in front of her. Again, he's the last person she expects to see. She just assumes he's a caretaker for the property. And a really ignorant one at that. He doesn't even realize that a body's been stolen. And then he says her name. 
A thousand memories come flooding back into her mind. And all of a sudden she knows it's him. She doesn't understand what's taken place. She doesn't understand how it could even be him standing there talking to her. But she knows his voice. In chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. And she knows his. It's him. And she turns to him and she says, Rabboni, in Aramaic. Him calling her name has changed everything for her. The fact that she cries out in Aramaic shows us she's surprised. If you speak two or three languages and somebody surprises you, your surprise will be expressed in your mother tongue. And Aramaic was her mother tongue. It was the language she used every day. She probably knew Greek and, and Latin as well. But she responds in Aramaic and says, Rabboni means teacher. And all at once, she is on her face at his feet. And he tells her to get up and to tell the others that he's alive. Then in one of the strangest verses in the New Testament, he tells her not to cling to him, that he hasn't yet returned to the Father. A lot of people have offered explanations of what he meant by that. And I think the best explanation is that he's telling her, I'm still here. I'm going to be here yet for a while. You don't need to cling to me. You'll have more opportunities to see me before I finally go and take up residence with the Father again, pointing to his ascension, which was yet 40 days away. It'll be recorded in Acts chapter 1. And so she goes, and she shares the news with the disciples. Mary comes to the tomb early that morning looking for a mangled body, but finding much, much more. She comes face to face with the risen, glorious Lord. And she sees him in all of his glory, different by far than the last time she saw him. Different even than he looked when he walked for those three years with his disciples. And her life is transformed from sadness to joy. We read next about Peter and John. Verses 3 through 10 show their question, and verses 19 to 23 show God's answer. In short, Peter and John come looking for evidence of a crime, but they end up finding much, much more. Let's take a look at verses 3 through 10. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Oh, let me, let me share something with you as, as I read this, because I think it, it helps us capture this moment well. There's a, a painting I saw on the cover of Christianity Today in 1985. Go ahead and put that up. It's entitled, Peter and John Running to the Tomb. Isn't that a great painting? I saw that on the cover of Christianity Today, and I actually wrote to the editor, and I said, I've got to get a copy. Where can I get a copy? 
And, uh, and I was thinking that this was a contemporary piece of artwork. I mean, look at John's haircut. I mean, it screams 1980s, doesn't it? And look at the expressions on their faces. It's, it's just an amazing piece of work. I did get a copy. I have it in my home in Wassa, And we've got a copy in the prayer room uh, that, that you can enjoy as well. I found out from the editors of Christianity Today that this wasn't the 1980s painting. This was painted in 1898. 1898. Beautiful, beautiful painting. We pick up in the text here, and we'll just leave that up for, for the duration of the text. Both were running. The other disciple outran Peter. That would be John. Outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So Peter and John race to the tomb. John wins the race, gets there first, but doesn't go in. Peter arrives and goes straight in. That's just Peter, isn't it? He observes the positioning of the strips of linen and the face cloth. Verse 7 literally says, The face cloth was not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in one place. So what it looks like is that Jesus moved through the mummy-like grave clothes and left them empty, but that he took the time to roll up the covering that had been on its face and set it to the side. And verse 8 tells us that John saw and believed. What did he mean when he recorded that he saw and believed? That word believed shows up so often in John's gospel. And yet verse 9 tells us they didn't understand this whole thing yet from a scriptural perspective. Did John remember what Jesus said about rising from the dead? Yet he didn't understand how this fulfilled the Old Testament and what it said about him. But he believed. What did he believe? believed that Jesus had risen somehow, that he had escaped the grave clothes by going through the grave clothes, that he was alive somehow, and that probably he had returned to the Father. John could only see at that point what we can see now. That's evidence. But it's enough for him to believe. There's that word again, believe. It pops up all over the Gospel of John. In Greek, the word is pistuo. Pistuo, and it means to believe, to trust. The noun form of it is faith. To have faith, in other words. Believe. Now, I know I've shared with you on two occasions here an illustration that explains what I think John means by believe. I took a chair, and I brought it up here, and I talked about that chair, and I shared three Latin words 
for believe, sort of different stages of believing. But let me just put it this way. You all came into this room and you all found a chair. You believed it to be a chair, and that's one type of believing. But it didn't do you any good at that point, did it? You identified a chair. And you might not have given it much thought, but you believed it would support your weight. That's another type of believing. But it still doesn't do you any good. But you're all sitting in chairs right now. At what point did you believe in that chair? I'd say it was at the point at which you trusted it enough to take a seat. That's the kind of believing that John is talking about here. If you're tired and you need a place to rest, believing in chairs doesn't really help you. Believing in a particular chair and believing that it can support your weight doesn't really help you either until you trust that chair enough to commit your weight to it and sit down. It's not the strength of your faith that matters in that case either. Believing a chair made of cardboard will support you, won't make it support you no matter how strong your faith in that chair is. It's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the strength of the object of your faith that matters. Believing God exists is a good start, but it won't save you. Even believing he can save you won't save you until you put your trust in him enough to commit your whole self to him, to invite him to forgive you and to live in you. Now, do you need to understand everything about him at that point? John didn't. Verse 8 tells us he saw and believed. Verse 9 says he didn't really understand how this uh, fit scripturally. He didn't understand the whole thing, and yet he put his trust in Jesus. He knew the object of his faith was good, so he could put his trust in him as little as he understood at that moment. So how's your faith? Is it fully informed? Do you get it all figured out? Me neither. But you can put your trust fully in Jesus because he's trustworthy. And you can figure out the rest as you go. Verse 10 tells us they go home from there. There's nothing left to see. Jesus isn't there. The grave is empty. But there's more, and we see it in verses 19 to 23. Take a look. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The ten are gathered together. That's the twelve minus Judas, who went and hanged himself, and, and Thomas, who didn't seem to get the, man, the, the memo. Uh, all we know is verse 24 tells us that he wasn't there. It's Sunday evening. It's Easter day evening now. They're behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders. And they're thinking right now about their own self-preservation. Somebody has, has killed their leader. They're wondering if the next people to go will be them. And it tells us then that Jesus came and stood among them. Now, they've, John has just mentioned the locked door. And so with that mention of the locked door, it suggests Jesus didn't use the door. He just appeared among them. How did he do that? Was he now some sort of ghost who could kind of pass through doors? Atomic theory suggests there is more space between atoms than there is stuff to fill it. So maybe he was just more real than the door. And then he greets them. I would hope so. If ever you're able to materialize in a room full of people who aren't expecting you, you better greet them. Otherwise, they're going to be jumping out of windows. So he, he greets them and says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his wounds. And then comes in verses 21 to 23 what's been called their personal Pentecost. It's certainly a foreshadowing of what would happen at Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, Jesus tells them he's sending them as the Father sent him. He gives them the Holy Spirit to guide them and empower them. And he gives them authority to forgive sins. Now, what does all of that mean? I believe he's giving them a mission in life. Remember, they're in self-preservation mode at this point. They're hiding behind locked doors. They're fearful. And Jesus says now to them, you are now to be my sent ones. The word apostle comes from the Greek word that means sent one. These ones are now being sent. And they're being sent to carry the good news of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. This gospel that has the power to cancel sin. Bottom line is, he's giving them a mission. He's giving them a purpose in life. They come to the tomb looking for evidence of a crime and they find much more that day. They're given a purpose for living. Their life is transformed from self-preservation to purpose, to mission. Mary is transformed from sadness to joy. Peter and John are transformed from self-preservation to mission, purpose. There's one more person in this passage who experiences transformation as well, and that's Thomas. We read about Thomas in verses 24 to 29. Verses 24 and 25 show his question. 26 through 29 shows us God's answer. In short, Thomas came looking for proof, but he found much, much more. 
Let's have a look. Verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. These verses tell us a couple things about Thomas. The first thing they tell us is, is the other name that he went by. He was also called Didymus. Didymus means twin. It also means double. And I look at that and I think, hmm, why did John mention that? James warns us in James chapter 1, verse 8, about the double-minded man. He says the double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. Certainly Thomas is double-minded and unstable in his mind at this point. The other thing that these verses tell us is that Thomas wasn't there the day Jesus appeared to the disciples originally and showed them his scars. So there's a conversation then that takes place between Thomas and the ten sometime during that week after that first Easter Sunday, and they say, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas's response gets him the handle that he has now had for 2,000 years, right? Doubting Thomas. Kind of a bad rap when you think about it. I mean, he just wasn't there the day that Jesus showed his scars to everybody else. He wants to see what they saw. So Thomas is looking for proof that will convince him that Jesus really is alive. And he gets it that next Sunday. Look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. So Jesus comes back to this room with the locked door, shows up in their midst once again, greets them, and invites Thomas to experience what he has to show. Go ahead and touch. Tells him to stop doubting and believe. New Living Translation says, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Literally, it's don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And there is that word again, believe, believing. Uh, we saw it earlier, that, that Greek word pistuo, the noun, to believe. Here we see it as an adjective. Go ahead. Apistos and pistos. And the A in the front means without. And pistos is, is faith. Without faith or with faith. Uh, faithless or believing. Jesus tells him, don't be without faith any longer. Be full of faith. Be a person of faith. Thomas doesn't need to touch. He exclaims, my Lord and my God. It's a confession of faith. Some have pointed to this verse as the high point 
in John's gospel, the climax, the whole thing where Thomas acknowledges him as Lord and God. It's a statement of who Jesus is. It points to the deity of Christ. Why didn't Jesus correct him at that point? It's because he was correct. Didn't need to be corrected. Jesus is Lord and God. What follows then is a lesson in seeing and believing. We may not all see, but we can all believe. Those who see and believe are blessed. Those who believe without seeing are even more so. And that brings us to us, to our own situation. We don't have Jesus showing up to invite us to examine his wounds. But we do still have the evidence of his resurrection. Thomas comes wanting proof that Jesus is raised. He gets much more. He finds faith. His life is transformed from doubt to faith. There's an epilogue here in the last two verses of this chapter. And it's about us. It's about you and me. Take a look. Verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John reveals the purpose of his gospel. He tells us, I haven't shared with you all the details that the others have written. There's so much more that I could have said, but I'm writing what I'm writing so that you'll put your trust in Jesus. I didn't write everything I could, but what I did write, I wrote so that you would see and believe. We can see Jesus in these pages and believe. He's more glorious than you and I have ever imagined. See him in all of his glory like Mary did that morning. See him transformed uh, in a resurrection body. See him in his glory. He is far grander, far greater than you and I have ever imagined him to be. See him fresh, fresh eyes. He has a mission for you and me like Peter and John. Hear him giving you a mission. Hear him giving you purpose in life because he is raised from the dead. And like Thomas, you and I can put aside our doubt and be people of faith who live by faith every day. So where are you today? What are you wrestling with today? Is it sadness like Mary, you're going through some tough times in your life. Let the risen Christ transform you in the midst of that from sadness to joy. Because our joy is in him. It's not in our circumstances. It's not our relationship with him. Maybe you are experiencing fear, looking at some things that are coming up and finding them a bit scary and like Peter and John, you can put your confidence in him. And your fear can be transformed as well by the risen Christ.
and you can replace it with a sense of mission and purpose. Maybe you've got doubts in your own mind right now about who he is, what he's about, like Thomas. But I would invite you to see Jesus as well, risen, glorious. Find in him the answers you're looking for and replace your doubt with trust and faith. You can experience transformation as well. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this chapter of your word that John has faithfully recorded for us. Thank you that it shows us the experience of several people who came looking for one thing and finding something entirely different. And Father, I, I don't know what people came here expecting or hoping to find this morning, but I pray that the long and the short of it is uh, that we would find you here and see you differently than we've seen you before. And the difference that we see today would be transforming for us. That we would be able to put our trust in you in a deeper and fuller way than we have before. Because of the experiences we're going through right now, because of these things that, that cause us to be looking for something, but more than that, because of the risen Christ who has the answers we're looking for, so much more than we were seeking. And so, Father, let us find our answers, our satisfaction, our comfort, our encouragement in him and live lives touched and transformed by his power. In his name we pray. Amen.